0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. I'm your host Claudia and I just wanted to give you a sort of update of what I'm going to be doing in the next few episodes. So the next few episodes I'm going to be delving into a few different cases which show various ways that domestic violence can be perpetrated and the way that the abusers can actually use these different ways um, against victims. Obviously the preface preface to the series is that if you have been a victim of domestic violence or are currently experiencing, it it could be quite distressing. But really what I'm trying to do with this series is to give everyone the information and the tools to be able to identify and hopefully help cases of domestic violence. It is quite poignant that I'm bringing this episode out today. As here in Australia, it's something that we call White Ribbon Day, which is a day that we should talk about and raise money for mi- victims of, today it's predominantly women of domestic violence, but as we all see, it's that's not only just the case. I myself have been the victim of domestic violence at first because the ways in which An abuser uses various ways of control. You feel as if it is something wrong with you. But then slowly, either during the abuse or afterwards, you start to have your eyes opened and you have an awakening to see the situation that you are in or the situation that you were in. When I go through the different types, I will actually give a few examples And some personal examples as well. I have been through um, with a cognitive behavioral therapist and I've also sat down with a psychiatrist to be able to go through the emotions that I've actually gone through and to be able to talk about this quite confidently now without feeling the strain that I used to. I used to find it very hard to talk about because I'd always find myself coming up with an excuse as if like, oh, well, they did it because of this. And I'd always somehow switch to blame it back on myself, which is something which I've noticed that a lot of victims of domestic violence do. And this is sort of like a hangover effect from what they've been through. Some people, like myself, are very lucky where... We can have all the support that we've had through therapists to overcome and learn how to manage how we felt. Don't get me wrong, there are still times where I can definitely still feel the pull and the strain, but it's certainly got so much easier to be able to talk about now. So domestic violence can actually manifest in so many ways and to anybody. I'm going to cover three cases over the next three three weeks or every fortnight, so the next six weeks and I'm going to show you the different situations, the different types and the different victims of domestic violence and also the ways in which after the fact or during the domestic violence, how the perpetrator actually behaves and reacts to these different ways that they are forcing their abuse on their victim. So to start with, I wanted to give a bit of an introduction. I wanted to go through the different ways in which domestic violence can be perpetrated against a victim. A person doesn't need to experience all of these types of abuse for it to be a crime under the law. So abuse can include verbal abuse, psychological abuse, emotional abuse, financial abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, harassment and stalking, spiritual or religious abuse, reproductive abuse or image based abuse. That's a lot to sort of cover off there. And this list is continually growing as we get more and more information about victims that have experienced domestic violence. So I'm going to go through that list and sort of break down each one point by point. Just so you do actually get the... Because sometimes when you don't understand and you see someone out in public and you see someone doing something to them you could just brush it off as being oh maybe that's how they banter that's how they talk to each other but it actually could come under one of these categories and there are red flags that do actually come up so the first one I just wanted to acknowledge was the verbal abuse so this is something that we do see quite often so it's Swearing and continual, continual humiliation in private or public. I've definitely had this in private. Attacks on intelligence, sexuality, body image, and capacity as a parent or a spouse. So I will give you quite a good example of this. I was definitely attacked as my ability as a parent. I was told that I was not a good mother. That I wasn't providing for my son that I was causing him distress which now that I've broken all of that down I know none of that that is true and but the way that I was constantly told that broke down my own personal self-esteem on my own personal belief and that is something that I have worked on to bring back up and to bring my confidence back up. Also in the verbal abuse category has ridiculing of religious belief or ethnical background, and the most obvious, screaming, shouting, name-calling, and put-downs. I know in when I was younger, my mum would always go, well, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. But really, verbal abuse can be one of the most painful because they could say a word to you and, well, I think the best way of saying it, it's like every time that word is said to you or you're put down, it's like it's being scratched into your skin like a tattoo artist and eventually it's branded into your skin and that's how you feel. But once you have start taking away, then you get those new layers and the newness comes in and that slowly starts to fade away. The next one is physical abuse, which I think most people, even myself, um, before I actually experienced any domestic violence, would probably say that this is one of the ones which people tend to think is what you see most. So it's direct assault on the body by choking, strangulation, shaking, eyes, injuries, biting, slapping, pushing, spitting, burning, punching, kicking, or pulling hair. Use of weapons, including objects. Hurting the person's children in front of them. Locking the victim in or out of the house or rooms. Or even sort of making the person to stay in, like trapping them forcing the victim to take drugs, not allowing medication, food or medical care, and not allowing sleep. Next one I was going to broach is psychological abuse. This is one of the ones which I think can cause the most damage and the one that I think takes one of the longest to really get over our form and get back to your usual form. And this is one that I really do think that the person will need a lot of therapy over. So a perpetrator can create fear such as driving dangerously, possessing weapons or angry looks. They can destroy property or valued possessions, hurting or killing pets in front of family members saying that the police and courts will not help support or believe the victim, threatening to out the person. And the one that I think is the most relevant to myself is making threats regarding custody of any children. So this was something that was held against me. And it was saying that because I wasn't a citizen of a particular country, that I would not be given custody of my child and that I was crazy, which is something that is called gaslighting. When someone continually calls you crazy, that's not healthy and that is abuse. And these are all things that can be taken into consideration when you are reporting domestic violence. Next one is emotional abuse. So this is blaming the victim for all the problems in the relationship constantly comparing the victim to others and to undermine their self-esteem and self-worth sporadic sulking withdrawing all interest and engagement this is an example is just giving people weeks of silent treatment not talking to them pretending they're not there an emotional blackmail and suicidal threats The next one is social abuse. So this is another one that I feel that I actually experience. And unfortunately, I still am experiencing quite a lot. Um, All of my family is currently in the UK. And from my perspective with the coronavirus and the lockdown that's going on at the moment, all my family are in lockdown. I have elderly family members who I am worried for and at the present time I wouldn't be able to see them if I did go over to the UK I'd have to isolate for two weeks before I would be able to see them but this isolation was caused beforehand um in the way that I can't travel home I can't unfortunately until anything gets passed through the Hague convention and Hague laws I can't travel home with my son so this is something which is called isolation from family and friends so they people try to alienate you from your family and limiting contact with them they instigate and control the move to a location where the victim has no established social circle or work opportunities I have gained a lot of my friends since the breakdown of my abusive relationship. Before that, I didn't really have any friends. I didn't go out. Restricting the use of a car or a telephone. I know for this that my car was owned by my abuser. It wasn't allowed to have my name on it. Um, My mobile phone was owned by my abuser as well. So they knew exactly where I was and who I was calling. Forbidding or physically preventing the victim from going out and meeting people. One that's not really talked about really is financial abuse. So this is one where... I think it has, people don't really understand it because it seems to have a lot of grey areas, but this is something that can prevent a victim from leaving someone because they don't have anything of their own and they are so scared. So this can have forbidding access to any bank accounts, providing only a small allowance, not allowing the victim to work or have a job, forcing the victim to sign documents or make false declarations using all the wages earned by the victim for household expense expenses controlling the victim's pension or denying that the victim is entitled to joint property sexual abuse is unfortunately quite a big one in domestic violence so it can be any form of pressured or unwanted sex or sexual degradation causing pain during sex, assaulting the genitals, force sex without protection against pregnancy or sexual transmitted disease, making the victim perform sexual acts unwillingly, including taking or distributing explicit photos without the consent, and criticising or using sexually degrading insults. I think that pretty much speaks for itself. Harassment and stalking. This can be following or watching, telephone or online harassment, tracking with GPS, being intimidated and coming into your own place without permission. This is also something that I did actually experience um, after my abuser left. They still had a key to the house and because I was renting, I tried to get permission to change the locks and that was denied. Um, this abuse would just come in whenever they felt like would park the car behind the garage door and I couldn't really go anywhere it was a time where I was quite scared spiritual or religious abuse so this is using spiritual or religious beliefs to scare, hurt or control you stopping you or shaming you for practicing your spiritual or religious beliefs Forcing you or your children to take part in spiritual or religious practices when you don't want to. Forcing you to raise your children according to spiritual or religious beliefs you don't agree with. Or using religious or spiritual leaders or teachings to force you to stay in the relationship or marriage as an excuse for their violent and abusive behavior. To stop you or your children from getting medical or health care force you or to force you into a marriage that you don't want the last two that i'm going to cover are fairly actually new ones that have actually just come onto the abuse domestic abuse list recently um so the first one is reproductive abuse so this is forcing or pressurizing you to have unprotected sex become pregnant or have an abortion Passing on a sexually transmitted infection they know that they have. Doing things to stop birth control, such as throwing them away, hiding them, stopping you from buying them. Preventing or limiting your access to sexual health services and information. Or forcing you to have operations to remove parts of your genitals. And then lastly is image-based abuse. So this is something that has actually come about um with the ease of social media being able to share things how mobile phones now can take pictures you can screenshot and images and everything can go viral within minutes even seconds so this can also be known as revenge porn it's when a nude or sexual image of you is taken and is shared without your permission It can also be sharing or threatening to share intimate nude or sexual photos or videos of you to your friends, family, strangers in person, or the internet, or on social media sites, or through a text message or an app. It's accessing personal computer files to steal images. Photoshopping a person's image onto a sexually explicit photo or video. Taking images of a woman's cleavage or under her skirt and secretly filming sexual activity or sexual assault. The reason why I went through all of these different things is basically to just put a bit of a spotlight. I know in the past people have excused behaviors of other people just saying, oh, that's just what they do. That's just how they are. I've been around people who it's been like that. It's just like, oh, that's just what they're like when they're angry. And that's not acceptable. You should not feel uncomfortable in any situation in your life. You should feel safe to be able to go to sleep at bed at night and not have to worry about your safety in any way. And that is something that, when I look back at my past, I didn't sleep properly. I was always anxious, always on edge, waiting for the next thing to happen. I've just given you a few snippets of the things that have actually happened to me. And as I said, it's been a process for me to be able to come out, to be able to speak about these things. And this is why I wanted to cover the three cases that I'm going to, because it shows three very radically different situations of domestic violence and exactly how it was perceived from the outside as well as how it was go- what was going on in the inside. And I just wanted to sort of bring awareness to this fact and sort of give this series a bit of an introduction as I know it's not a pleasant subject, but it's a subject that everybody needs to talk about because by talking about it, That is the only way that we are going to be able to call out the abusers and make sure that people feel safe. So the first case I'm going to be covering is sort of against the social norm of what we would normally believe domestic violence to be. So this is a case of Christopher Donnelly. This case is actually a very recent case, just happening in 2018. And the level of control in this case made the abuse an everyday occurrence. Christopher was found dead of bronchial pneumonia, but he also appeared to be heavily beaten. He was so physically weakened that even his immune system gave up. When emergency services arrived, Christopher had already been dead for 12 hours and was found on the bathroom floor of his home with 78 external injuries, which included a neck and a spine fracture. Hannah Christopher's wife, willingly went to the police station for questioning, where she brushed off the abuse of both him and their children as in-jokes for everyone involved. This was not a natural death, even though this is what Hannah Gret would try to explain it as. She sickeningly told police. First of all, I tried to sort things out with him in a bantering sort of way. Like, if I hit you with a rolling pin, maybe you'll come out of your trance. I'd hit him a bit harder sometimes, As I said, he never, it wasn't that he fell and lost consciousness. Later on, she also admitted to punching him on the nose. It was uncovered that both Christopher and his children were subjected to a dictatorship in the home, with the children even being taught at home by Hannah Gret, so they can live by her rule. Hannah Gret created a household that is almost like a separate land and this is a land where she has absolute power. That's a quote from forensic psychologist Dr Donna Young and she carried on to say Like any territory under absolute dictatorial control, it is one where she keeps a very firm hold on the infiltration of any external influences. There is no technology allowed, the children are homeschooled, it's a psychological fortress. And for Christopher, this also eventually meant that he wasn't allowed access to the medical care he desperately needed when he became ill. So let's wind it back a little bit, so you can get a little bit more information about the case. So Hannah Grett actually called the police and paramedics and she called the emergency services in Buckinghamshire, England from her neighbour's telephone as the one in their household had been disconnected. On this initial telephone call, she told the 999 operator that she had attempted CPR, but was not successful. The operator did think it was strange that she did not seem overly distressed or have any emotion. When the paramedics arrived on the scene, they noted that Christopher was cold to the touch and had several old injuries to his face and body, which were actually healing. During their time at the house, they spoke to Hannah Grett, who openly admitted that they had had a falling out, and that she'd even hit him over the head with a rolling pin. All in all, a number of seemingly abnormal events seemed to have taken place to lead us up to this point. Leaving someone who you claim to love to die alone on the bathroom floor and to not call any authorities immediately indicated a lack of any moral fibre and compassion. This is not a normal response to a person's death. This is early evidence of an exceptionally possessive woman. Even in Christopher's death, she still sees him as her possession. And for someone Who trained as a midwife in her earlier years, makes this woman even more chilling. Forensics eventually went to the Donnelly home and they started to find evidence of this being a long-running systematic abusive relationship. There was blood found on the ceiling, the walls, and the furniture which clearly indicated someone who had been killed rather than died of natural causes. And further investigations into the blood spatter showed that it was not just from one occasion and that some of the blood was older than others. This shows that the physical abuse happened multiple times over a long period of time. So Christopher's death was noted down to the bronchopneumonia. But really, the question that came about this case was, was this hastened because of the torture he received from his wife? And if so, does this make it a murder case? When the police were questioning Hanegret, she was giving police what she thought was a totally rational answer to why she had hit Christopher with a rolling pin he had gone into one of what she had called his trances. And this was the way in which she would get him out of it. But really from the evidence gained after the fact is that at this point, Christopher was a very ill man. He was both physically and mentally weak. And whatever trance he was in was from the abuse that his wife was dealing out. You can actually watch her interviews on YouTube and just to watch her give the interviews, it's it's quite jarring. During these interviews with police, you can see that Hannah Grett's body language is at odds with the words coming out of her mouth. She is used to providing a rational account of what happened but her body language shows annoyance that the investigators don't believe her story. To them, her story is simply not adding up. For the police to mount a case, though, and to be able to prosecute her for murder, they have to look back into the couple's history. So both Christopher and Hannah Gret had been married for 23 years. And Christopher was predominantly a music teacher. He did originally get a biomedical degree, but then he did actually go on to um, be a music teacher as he played the clarinet, and he was actually really good at playing music, and he played publicly. And you just think this man must have had such a tremendous talent to be able to do all of these things. They actually had four children together, aged between thirteen and twenty-one, at the time of Christopher's death. But all five were ruled under the strong matriarchal of Hannah Gret Donnelly. There were undoubtedly aspects of the Donnelly household that was dissimilar from their neighbours. They were a religious family who had a strong belief in an end of days existence. They shunned modern technology and they had, quote unquote, opted out of society. The heart of the decision-making for the Donnelly family was Hannah Gret. She was not keen on the outside world and had such a huge mistrust that she pulled her children out of mainstream education and homeschooled them. This is also a show of control to control everyone in the household, to control learning. As the couple and their children got older, they retreated more and more into the house. And this is where Hanegraat had her absolute power. Isolation is a tried and tested way that abusers hold more power over their victims. And the more power they get, the more abuse they dish out. By having this isolation, it makes it easier for abusers not to get their actions picked up by authorities or others around them. And because they're in isolation and nobody sees anything, nothing can be done to prevent any further abuse. By January 2018, so three months before Christopher's death, he was considered disabled as he was unable to walk. His health had simply dwindled over the years he was married. He had stopped working as a music teacher due to ill health in 2015. And then his mental health seemed to deteriorate at a rapid rate after that. This is a time that his wife should have been supporting him through the period of mental health being deteriorated, but instead she'd be making it worse with her constant tirade of abuse. It was shown in Christopher's autopsy that he had a cauliflower ear, which is more commonly seen in boxers or the big WWE fighters because they've been hit so often in an area and the cartilage in Christopher's voice box was so damaged that it had actually caused an infection, which actually led to the bronchial pneumonia, which eventually killed him. As discussed earlier on, there was lots of different types of abuse that came from Christopher's case. As documented in Navarro's mentioned, there was a long run of physical abuse, which can be seen from all the injuries left on Christopher's body. She also used control because she wanted to know about all of Christopher's life. She would restrict his medication and the use of the toilet just to control him even more. She also used psychological abuse on Christopher by making him feel like he could not live his life without her. She reduced him over time to the shadow of a wounded animal, a living hell for a man living in plain sight. It is also shown from the police interviews. That Hannah Grett thought violence and abuse was an acceptable method to show her control and dominance. Her interviews, when you watch them, are truly chilling because she talks so impassionately and dismisses all her actions. And she shows no remorse for any of her actions, which led her to taking her husband's life. She has a terribly cavalier view of what was an entirely horrific situation. From a psychological standpoint, the type of abuser and murderer that Hannah Gret is, is what we call a victim as object. Meaning that she doesn't see her victim as fully human, and the outcome is usually seen as something insignificant to her. Like if you were just throwing a piece of eaten food into the bin she doesn't hate her husband it was just that she wanted to possess and to control him and that's all she ever wanted to do so when this did go to court eventually well when they first charged Hannah Gret, they had charged her with bodily harm and then when they found out that the physical abuse, so then the cartilage led to the infection and the infection led to the bronchial pneumonia. That's when they charged Hanagrette with murder. So Hanagrette Donnelly was found guilty unanimously by a jury after entering a plea of not guilty. And she was sentenced to a life in prison with a minimum time of 16 years. What I feel from this case is a huge immense of sadness towards Christopher and also his children. We are, you know, we use in society words like, oh, you've got to man up. Like, I can imagine some people, if Christopher might have told them what happened, gone, or you just need to man up and tell her where to go. Well, something along those lines. But she'd broken him down so much that had caused him to live in fear of doing anything. Whatever he did, he was going to do something wrong. And I do hope that their children are getting the therapy and the psychological help that they can because they've lived under that roof and they've been brought up under that. So they'll need help to be able to come around because they have been abused as well. We didn't really find anything else about them, obviously, trying to protect them and make sure that they can have some sort of normal life in the future. But Christopher was taken away from him. He was only 56 he was so young in modern day society and it—it it is that he just gave up and unfortunately victims of abuse after long-term abuse they do just give up that's why I was trying to bring through the start of this episode of podcast is to bring through that they don't need to give up. There are people out there who can help, who can bring everybody together and who can help them. Statistically, Hannah is a very rare killer, but this case in particular shows that violence can come from anybody, which is also what I'm going to show in my next case. On the next episode. My sources this week were whiteribbon.org.au, facs.nsw.gov.au, tyler.com, metro.co.uk, and the Lady Killers docu series on the Crime and Investigation Network. I will be adding into my show notes some links and some telephone numbers. I'm going to do it predominantly just for Australia because that's where I am, the UK because that's where I am from and where this case was, and also for the United States as I know it's one of the biggest listeners. I'm sorry if I don't cover your country for if you do need some help with domestic violence. Your government's website should have something on there to cover domestic violence. And they usually do have actually a quick link to get off the site if your abuser actually comes in and they can actually make it untraceable as well. So please be aware of that. There are systems there, but if you need any help, please go to the show notes and I'll pop those um, links in there. So on the next episode, as I said, I will be covering another case, which is slightly out of the norm. And the case is uh, is of Sophie Leonette. So thank you for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. If you like this podcast, please subscribe for more content. Please join our Facebook group, Macabre for Mortals podcast. And I've also started an Instagram page with some photos of the people involved in the cases to give you a bit of a visual impact. This page can be found under Macabre for Mortals. Or if you have any stories or cases that you'd like me to cover, then please email them to macabreformortals at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and sticking with through this with me. I know it's um, a bit of a tetchy subject, but I think it's something that does need to be covered and does need to be brought out into the spotlight a little bit more. I hope you have a fabulous week and thank you for joining me. Bye.